Welcome to Wide-Mindedness with Victoria Ball, the podcast in which I interview expert guests who want to join me in celebrating that life is not black and white. Our society is increasingly divided, and the us-versus-them mentality seems to dominate our conversations and relationships with others. I believe that life is much richer when we widen our minds to consider multiple opinions and perspectives. So challenge your assumptions and let's become truly wide-minded together. A.C. Grayling, CBE, is the Master of the New College of the Humanities, London, and its Professor of Philosophy. He is also a supernumerary fellow of St Anne's College, Oxford. He is the author of over 30 books of philosophy, biography, history of ideas and essays. He was, for a number of years, a columnist on The Guardian, The Times and Prospect magazine. He has contributed to many leading newspapers in the UK, US and Australia and to BBC Radio 4, 3 and The World Service, for which he did the annual Exchanges at the Frontier series and has often appeared on television. He has twice been a judge on the Booker Prize in 2014, serving as the chair of the judging panel. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, a Vice President of Humanists UK, Patron of the Defence Humanists, Honorary Associate of the Secular Society, and a Patron of Dignity in Dying. Professor Grayling, thank you so much for joining me today. A real pleasure. To describe you as a philosopher seems to me to be a somewhat inadequate description, given the breadth of your work. I would perhaps prefer to describe you as a polymath, which might be more fitting. Do you see a benefit of bringing this idea of wide-mindedness to one's career and skill set? Well, firstly, let me say that um, I regard the title philosopher as being such an honorific that I don't apply it to myself. I mean, I I study philosophy and I teach it and I write about it and made my you know uh, career out of it. But if you if I were to say I'm a philosopher, then that would be to seek to be put in the first team with Aristotle and Descartes and so on. So you know, so I, I do think it is quite an honorific. And the other thing is, of course, that until very recently, the the word philosophy meant rational inquiry into everything. And indeed, to, to be a philosopher in that sense, therefore, was to be a polymath. And my only objection to the word polymath is that it has, you know, connotations of a parrot. <laughs> Absolutely. One that's particularly good at adding up. Perhaps. When I launched this podcast, I knew I just had to speak to you, given the depth of your, uh, what I would call, philosophical experience and expertise. For me, the concept of word-mindedness perhaps fits very well into that description of philosophy. It delves into questions of how we should live, how we should think, how we should navigate our relationships with others. Could you tell me about your first exposure to philosophy? How did uh, little young Anthony come across it for the first time? Well, I, I had uh, the um, good fortune in this respect, I suppose, of having spent my childhood uh, in the fastnesses of Africa, for pretty well in the middle mm. of the continent, really. My father was working abroad, and uh, we were living in what is now Zambia and then Malawi. In, in the Zambia case, we were right on the border of the of the Congo, the Belgian Congo, as, as was. 
and there was no television. It was awfully difficult to get World Service radio. So the adults had as a, their resource um, adultery and alcohol, and we children really had nothing available other than reading. And I became, you know, this is no piety that everybody trots out about how much they read as a kid, but in fact, it just wasn't an alternative. You couldn't go for country walks because you'd be eaten by lions and so on. In any case, it was too hot. So I used to read an enormous amount. Of, we had a big set of encyclopedia at home that I would browse. And look at these pictures, sepia-tinted, because it was an old encyclopedia, of Plato and Aristotle and their magnificent beards. And I was so curious, trying to make sense of the articles, but I really wanted to read them themselves. And when I was 12, I managed to, to wangle a ticket to the grown-up part of the library in the little town where we lived. And it was a very unusual library because a lot of people had, had gone out to Africa to run the empire. You know, they died of tropical diseases and left their books in this library. So there was a complete set of the dialogues of Plato. And I took down the first volume and opened it at the first dialogue, which happened to be the Carmides. And it's a very accessible dialogue. And I began to read it and was bowled over by it. I thought, this is wonderful. If this is what these great iconic figures of our culture have dedicated their lives to, then I'm going to do the same. And not very long afterwards, um, about two years later, I bought for the princely sum of sixpence uh, G.H. Lewis's Biographical History of Philosophy. As you know, Lewis was George Eliot's consort, and they were a fiercely intellectual uh, couple. And he wrote this uh, rather wonderful mid-19th century history of philosophy, which I, I think I must have read about 15 times cover to cover, because I've still got it, and it's falling to pieces now. Uh, and, and that you know, was so inspiring and, and so uh, kind of lit the, the fuse paper. But then I discovered to be interested in philosophy is to be interested in everything, in science, in history, in literature. You know, the whole, I mean, you talk about, about wide-mindedness, you're so right about this. This is only connect, you know, Forster, and it's about putting things into context. It's about seeing how the ankle bone connects to the knee bone in, in all things. And philosophy is very, very much that enterprise. And I so relished it when I was young, and I've relished it ever since. I'm so pleased to hear that because I was giving a lecture on wide-mindedness last year and I encouraged people to embrace that curiosity that we all have as children. And I think sometimes, sadly, we, we lose a little of when we become adults. Life gets busy and we have other stresses and things to think about. But I love that idea of a child having a voracious appetite for knowledge and trying to make sense of things and how things connect. And that comes across so clearly in, in your first encounter of philosophy as a discipline, which, as you so rightly say, is it, it seeks to offer questions but answers to how things fit together and one's place in the world. I love your book, What is Good? The Search for the Best Way to Live. Why do you think we are so intrigued by life's big questions? And how do you suggest, as adults, we go about answering them? I think we're intrigued because uh, the sense of having a, a, a home in, in the universe in some way now, of course, a, a lot of people will reach for the nearest and easiest kind of answer to that, which is uh, some ideology, some uh, religious commitment, as it might be. But for, for those people who, who would really, who are really puzzled by it in, in a very healthy and constructive way, the idea of, of trying to make sense of things and to, and to fit themselves into this vast and 
fascinating scheme is a is a is a real invitation isn't it it's it's um it's something that would move you to want to to listen to the conversation that other people have had about this this is the great conversation of humankind in its uh, philosophical and scientific mm. and historical literary discussions about these things and then perhaps to take part in that discussion to talk about it to to ask questions and then one finds that some of the biggest questions you know the what does it all mean kind kind of question doesn't admit of very ready answers and sometimes even seem there seem to be no answers at all but one finds that in the effort to make sense of them one still learns a huge amount there's a marvelous mm. uh, remark by the french poet paul valery who said a difficulty is a light but an insurmountable difficulty is the sun because trying to make sense of it is so illuminating i love that that's so true it's important to grapple with things that we uh, can't make sense of and i think i think that's we're not necessarily terribly good at that if something doesn't have a clear answer uh, perhaps we sometimes shy away from it and i think when i talk about life being increasingly black and white i fear that that is um, a path that we're going down a path that we're hemming ourselves into well if we can't work out the answer then there's no point asking the question and I think, and I, I think from what you're saying, you, you would agree that life is so much richer when, when we try and we try and make sense of it. Yes, yes, indeed. You know, Matthew Arnold remarked, uh, um, what dusty answers gets the soul when hot for certainties in this our life? And far too many people, when they're confronted with those dusty answers, do what I said earlier, which is to, to you know, grab at something that will provide a a kind of comfort blanket of ideas so they don't have to really work at thinking them through themselves. And those people who, who won't be satisfied with that um, learn, and, and I think this is very distinctive, particularly of the scientific mind, they learn to live with doubt and open-endedness and, uh, you know, there, there being no uh, definite or clear, easy answer. Um, and even indeed, but rather to welcome the fact that every partial answer prompts more questions. I remember talking to a, a friend who is a, one of the leading scientists at CERN mm. on the Large Hadron Collider, mm. one of the discoveries of the Higgs boson a few years ago. And I said to him, gosh, it must have been so wonderful on the day that you all felt confident enough to publish um, the results of your experiments on this. And he said, oh, yes, yes, it, it was rather nice. But do you know what? It would have been even nicer if we hadn't found it, because then that would have meant there masses more science to do. I love that. It's a spirit of inquiry, which is so refreshing. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah, very much. That, that, that is the one thing that we know about Socrates' view. But but also mm. this this challenge. I mean, he, he found that, that um, when he asked people, about very important concepts like justice and truth and the good and uh, honesty and so forth, that they, they had kind of, you know, rather easy, pat, rather shallow views of these things. And he wanted to force them to think through to the very bottom of it so they understood. Mm. And he pointed out to them that unless you think about the choices you make and about how you're to live your life, then you're going to be living somebody else's conception of a worthwhile life. Mm. And and therefore your life isn't really going to be the best kind of life there could be. You need to own it. You need to be completely responsible for it. And that's why he said the unconsidered life is not worth living because it's not your life. 
Mm. And, you know, that's something, however simple that seems, that remark, it's actually both a very deep one and a very subversive one. It's a very deep one because it poses with pinpoint uh, clarity, really, the great demand of the ethical life. Mm. Now, let, let me just say, if I may, mm. that ethics is not the same thing as morals. Mm. If you think about the word ethics, it comes from the Greek ethos, which means character. Mm. And so ethical concerns are about how you answer the question, what sort of person should I be? How should I live? What values should shape and color my life? Morality is about, you know, keeping promises and not telling too many fibs and all that. That's about interpersonal relationships or some aspects of them. Mm. But the great ethical uh, question is, how should I live? What should I be? That is why it needs to be considered. That's why the unconsidered life in not belonging to you yourself is one that Socrates thought is, is not worth living. So it's deep for that reason. And it's subversive for the following reason, that the vast majority of human beings throughout history have been told what the answer is about how we should live. They've been told they must believe this and they must do that. They must obey this and, and observe that. And then whatever the reward is, some philosophic uh, condition in an afterlife or something. But, but the implication there is that there is a one-size-fits-all answer to the question of what the good and meaningful life mm. is. Whereas what Socrates is saying is that there are as many possible good and worthwhile lives as there are individuals to create them, to choose them, to make them. That's why it's so subversive, because it, it pushes back against this idea that there is this one-size-fits-all answer. Well, that's fascinating, because then, uh, you know, this topic that I'm discussing, wide-mindedness, becomes ever more pertinent, because we would have to hold in our minds the possibility that there might be more than one way. And that's not something I sense we're terribly natural at as humans. We, we like, as you've referred to it, a comfort blanket to, to give us a conclusive, definitive answer that fits every situation. Indeed, because, I mean, you know, one... Uh important aspect of wide-mindedness is um, this business of recognizing that there are other points of view, other perspectives, other people are seeing things from a different point in space, from a different point in experience, from a different point in the palette of their desires and interests. Uh, and, you know, we, we've all heard um, all, all these sort of cliche things like, oh, you've got to walk in another person's shoes for a mile and so forth. But they are very, very, very true. It's such a great pity that these these remarks uh, get kind of shop-soiled in a way and people don't realise just how true they are. Because to, to have a view and to relate to other people well, and here's the other thing, of course, because Socrates was talking about the individual and his or her responsibility. But the, uh, the, the other fact about us, that we are essentially social beings, that we need one another, we need friendship, we need to love and be loved. And we need to be connected to um, others in, in the human story. Mm. And not, not in ways that, um, you know, uh, exclude some in order to privilege others. That's too common a, a feature of our world, isn't it? But to be able to see that we're a node in a network and to be able to feel all the tremors, all the messages, all the impulses that come down um, the wires of that network that we belong to. And that requires the kind of wide-mindedness you're thinking about. Mm. 
And does that mean that, I mean, I always say, oh, well, to be wide-minded means that it's a richer life for all the reasons we've discussed. But to take that idea of a comfort blanket that you're referring to there, does it mean that questioning minds are always going to be um, a little troubled and dissatisfied if we're always looking for answers? Wouldn't it be easier to accept um, a one-size-fits-all measure? Well, what's the benefit of it? Well, um, you, you know, there's this other thing, isn't there, about uh, which would you rather be, uh, a happy pig or an unhappy Socrates? <laughs> and, the, you know, the point of asking that question is really to ask a question about what matters most mm. to you in, in your life. Let's think for a moment about um, the, the concept which hovers on the margin of this, the concept of happiness, mm. of contentment, of safety of security of being untroubled and not anxious uh, and um, the, the concept of happiness itself which has come to mean in recent times a certain sort of emotional state a contented or unanxious emotional state uh, untroubled one of course it didn't mean that for most of its history it, what, what it meant was a condition of life Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the American Declaration of Independence didn't mean life, liberty, and a sort of smiley feeling. <laughs> it meant life, liberty, and a good condition of existence. That is, you had a roof over your head and enough food for your right. stomach and those you loved were safe and so on. So happiness, a happy condition, is, is not an emotion. And what, we, what we've kind of seduced ourselves into thinking is that life is good and positive and valuable if we're happy in it, in the modern sense of, of happy. Now, um, you know, there are all sorts of ways of making yourself happy, shutting your eyes to the harsh realities of the world or to the, the suffering and, and poverty of so many of our fellow human beings, um, not recognising that we're being invited to accept certain sorts of, of, of challenges, to advance ourselves, to, to make ourselves better people and it sounds rather strenuous doesn't it but, you know that life you know, that life does pose some invitations that are that are worthwhile some risks that are worth taking mm. like the risk of, of um falling in love or whatever uh, and actually if you think about it if you if you do fall in love with somebody and that person falls in love with you back then you have entered a, a contract together for grief because one of you will die first or one of you will fall in love with somebody else and go away or, mm. or something. It is a contract for sorrow. All, all relationships are, in a way. And, and that seems like a terribly negative thing to say about them. But it's just true. And it also means that you shouldn't be afraid of it. You, you should mm. embrace it anyway. So that kind of challenge may not be one that uh, you know, conduces to um, eternal happiness, but, but certainly it's better worth committing yourself to that kind of relationship and running away from it. In 2011, your uh, Humanist Bible, The Good Book, was published. For anyone who hasn't read it, it's a secular alternative to a, a religious text and draws on non-religious philosophy from the ancient Greek, Roman, Chinese, Indian and Arab traditions, as well as building on ideas developed during the Renaissance and the Age of Enlightenment and later scientific discoveries. To me, this seems a very wide-minded approach to ethics. Can you tell me about the research process for that book and what benefits you think a reader can gain from considering uh, a number of different philosophies from different civilizations? 
Well, it, it started uh, um, when I was a uh, um, student at Oxford, actually. I was thinking to myself uh, um, that the fundamentally there are two different um, bases for ethical outlooks. One is the divine command morality that uh, we're familiar with in the different religious traditions. Mm. And the other is a broadly speaking humanistic or small h uh, humanistic sense of trying to start from our best, our most sympathetic and generous understanding of the human condition and of what and of human nature and both those things of course are quite um quite deep and difficult things to explore mm. but there is a huge amount of of discussion of them obviously in our literature and in our history and our philosophy and i thought to myself well do you know what if if the people who had made the bible and, and we know how the bible was made it was uh, edited together from lots of different resources, lots of different texts were redacted and, and uh, paraphrased and changed and inconvenient occurrences of the word not were deleted and so forth. And it was you know patched together in that way. There were at least, for example, four authors from whom the um, book of Genesis is derived. I thought to myself, if only the, uh, these people had gone to the secular literature of the world, to the poets, to the philosophers and historians. When I launched this podcast, I promised that I would keep episodes to just the right length of time for a run or to listen to over a coffee break. But this week's guest just had so much to say that I couldn't possibly fit it into one episode of 22 Minutes. So this is the end of part one, but please do subscribe to make sure that you come back for part two with AC Grayling. Unsurprisingly, it's full of yet more gems of philosophical wisdom. So I really hope you'll come back and join me for part two. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Wide Mindedness with Victoria Ball. Help others learn about it by rating, reviewing and subscribing. For more great wide-minded content, follow at WideMindednessVictoriaBall on Instagram, at WideMindedness on Twitter and sign up to the monthly newsletter at victoria-ball.com.